bad. We're in, a, in this series in Ma- uh, Jesus Works. We're in Matthew chapter 9. Who needs a Bible? They'll bring one right from the back. Bill's got them in his hand. Just raise your hand. He'll pop one in your hand uh, over on this side. Letty's handing them out. So if you need one, you can take it home with you. We want you reading God's Word. And uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. So turn there with me. Ever have the experience of losing something precious? You know, maybe you dropped a contact lens down the sink or can't find your car keys or lost your wedding ring or, you know, lost a kid at the airport. We tried that once, and after frantically looking for about 20 minutes, the kid who was about four said to some lady, some stranger, you know, I think my mom is lost. And uh, fortunately, we, we got reunited. But, you know, losing something that's precious, you have this frantic search well, lost people really matter to God. He's looking. He's looking, and he's wanting to find you. And Jesus' whole purpose to come into the world was to seek or to search and to save the lost. He's looking for them. He came to call his, his own people to himself and to be with us and to forgive and to heal and to restore. And, uh, I mean, this has been promised since before Jesus was ever born. When uh, Mary knew that she was going to bear the Christ child and she told Joseph, he didn't know what to do, kind of beside himself, but the Bible says, and this is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God came to be with us and to forgive our sin and to make us right with God. And so when God with us grew up and began his ministry of forgiving sin and restoring relationships, well, then we get to this story right here in Matthew chapter 9. It says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Why why did Jesus heal people? I think the answer is to prove he had the power, to prove that he had the authority to forgive sin and to restore people into relationship with God, to attract attention from people so that they would listen to God's appeal. I mean, Jesus has the powers that only God has because Jesus is God. That's the conclusion that Jesus hoped they would come to. And many people, sadly, in our world have not reached that conclusion yet even to this day. So Jesus is here doing the works of God. Look at some of what he does. I realize these are kind of close together in your notes, so you have to write fast. But he reads people's thoughts. He could read people's thoughts. He read the paralytic's thoughts. He read the scribe's thoughts just in this passage. He forgives sins. He declares God's word, the truth. 
Then he healed in miraculous kind of ways. He could heal with a touch or with a word. And he prompts people to give glory to God. So Jesus read people's thoughts. He forgives their sin. He declares God's word the truth. He heals in miraculous ways, and he prompts people to give glory to God. Now, if you didn't catch all those, I hope you're sitting next to a pretty girl who takes good notes. You know, that's how some people made it through school. But anyway, let's look at what a miracle Jesus did, particularly at some of the people involved, because they seem to be all over the map spiritually. <clears throat> Matthew 9, verse 1, getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Remember, Jewish people lived on the western side of the Sea of uh, Galilee, and he had gotten in the boat with the disciples to go over to the other side because there were a couple of demon-possessed men that he wanted to heal. In the process, he had all the disciples in the boat. He caused the perfect storm, and uh, so it's kind of a test of the faith for the disciples. They found out that their faith was just so average. In fact, Jesus said, oh, you have little faith, and they're left wondering, well, who is this? Jesus. I mean, even the wind and the waves obey him. <clears throat> when they got over there, he healed the two uh, demon-possessed men, let, uh, cast out the evil spirits, and they went into a herd of swine that were right there. Those people weren't Jewish. They were Gentile. All the swine raced down the, the slope and into the lake and drowned. And so when the healers ran, the, the, the herders, the sheep herders, uh, the pig herders ran to town and told the story, everybody came out to see Jesus, but they asked him to depart because they were more afraid of, the, of him than they were of the two demon-possessed men that had been there. So this is where Jesus is returning. He's coming back across the lake. He had kind of adopted um, uh, Capernaum as his new headquarters. It was the home of Peter and Andrew. And uh, so he's returning there. He's done miracles there in Capernaum before at Peter's house. And uh, so he's uh, returning there. So what kind of people were attracted to Jesus in this story? We know the disciples are with him, but they don't factor in the story at all. The first people we see are stretcher bearers, people who carry the burdens of others. These guys that uh, said, uh, you know, and we don't even know their names. I mean, we're guessing there's four of them because there's four corners to the guys caught. And, you know, but, you know, hey, Joe, did you, did you see that that Jesus guy's boat came into the slip last night? You know, he must be back in town. Why don't we get, a, you know, tomorrow, well, let's get up and uh, we'll go see him. Maybe, you know, remember they were healing at Peter's house last week and there were people all over his front yard? Well, we could just take Herman over there and get him healed. You know, he's kind of a big guy, but if Jude and uh, Jake help us, well, you know, he won't want to go. Herman won't want to go, but we'll just tell him we're doing it. And so they're, they're stretcher bearers. They're helping to carry the burdens of others. The other people that you see in this story are the needy people who show up hoping for a miracle and finding it in faith and obedience. Jesus healed a lot of people. Then you also have the picky people, the ones that are there because they want to find fault or they want to uh, criticize or they came because they had a complaint. And then you have the happy crowd that came just basically to go to the show. You know, they wanted to see what was happening and it thought it would be a lot of fun. So Matthew leaves out some of the color commentary that Mar uh, Mark and Luke give us that when they got there with this man who's uh, paralyzed, that Jesus is inside a house. 
and he's healing, so, and there's such a large crowd that they can't get in. I mean, there's, there's people inside the house, standing room only. There's people looking in all the windows trying to, what did he say? What did he say? And uh, Jesus is inside uh, preaching and talking and healing people. And they get there. The stretcher bearers get there. They assess the situation. I, I'm guessing they tried to squeeze in through the front door, but <clears throat> people refused to give up their spot because then they wouldn't be able to hear Jesus. And so... <clears throat> They finally said, we got to do something to get him in front of Jesus. I don't know why they couldn't just wait their turn. Maybe they didn't learn that in kindergarten. But um, anyway, a lot of houses in that era were built with a flat roof. And uh, it would be thatch and then mud put on top of it. Or if you were more wealthy, there would be tile. And uh, there, there was a set of stairs that went up to the, the, uh, the roof that acted kind of like a porch where you could go and you could sit and kind of watched the world go by. And so they took him up there, and then they started peeling the roof back, taking it apart, pounding it out. So I think it must have been kind of comical down below them because here Jesus is trying to teach, and somebody's banging on the roof and knocking a hole in it. And there's got to be more noise than he wanted and a lot of dust coming down. And you didn't want to look up because you didn't want to get a chunk of mud in, in the eye. But at the same time, what, what are they dropping on our head and what's happening? People looking up and finding there's a little hole and there's light coming in. And then they look up again and the head is poking in. And then pretty soon the hole's getting bigger and they're dropping a body through it. And everybody putting their hands up and helping get this guy down to the ground. And, you know, and he's paralyzed. You got to be careful. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Their faith is not the paralytic's faith. His faith was healed, his, his, his body was healed because of the faith of the four stretcher bearers, the people who said, come on, I'm taking you to Jesus. You know, sometimes we can get so paralyzed because of our loss or our grief or our pain that we, we can't or we don't even reach out to Jesus. And we needed someone to put their faith into action just to get us moving in the right direction. That's why here at church we have a program called Grief Share, which Pastor Bob Vanderzag leads now. Pastor Lennox led it for years. In fact, did you know, I should have told you sooner, but today is Pastor Lennox's first Sunday in heaven. He went to join Wilma, who went just last month. And he was ready. He wanted to be there. But he led that program for us for quite a while. And, and so Jesus says, he sees the faith of the forehead sticking in the, in the roof. He goes, he looks at the paralytic. You take hearts, my son. Your, faith, your sins are forgiven. Now, I know here in America, we like to think that, you know, we are capable and self-sufficient and we really, we could do it on our own and pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, but we really do need each other. And these stretcher bearers went to great lengths to get their friend in front of Jesus, to carry the burdens of others. It probably took longer and took more effort than they had calculated. They weren't thinking when they left his house that they would have to break into this house, you know, bring their tool belts and take the roof apart just to get him to get to see Jesus. But Jesus says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. I mean, Jesus addresses his greatest need of his sin, but he's also, he knows what's going on in the man's head and in the man's heart. That he's scared and he probably feels like he doesn't deserve to be there and that maybe, you know, his sin has partially caused his problem. We don't know that. Your sins are forgiven. See, I can... I can forgive somebody who's sinned against me, and I know it's hard for us to do to forgive somebody. We say it's best to forgive and forget, but 
Probably not. We're not all that good at forgetting things like that. The painful things we seem to remember longer than the happy things, don't we? But uh, I think what we're really trying to say when we say forgive and forget is forgive and choose not to focus on it the same way, to think about the person differently and uh, rather than on how they have hurt us. And Jesus has a lot to say in his teachings about forgiveness. But when we fail to forgive, it's like you're carrying an extra 10 pounds in your purse or, you know, in a backpack. And, you know, how many of those can you carry until you're feeling overloaded? So forgiving others is important for us to do, not primarily for the other person who we think they need to be forgiven. No, I need to forgive them so I don't have to carry it so that I can keep my own heart healthy and strong and open to what Christ wants to do and not be filled with all of this anger and bitterness and frustration at other people for how they failed or how mean or how rude they were. You know, I can forgive somebody for what they have done against me, but I cannot forgive another person for their sin against God. Only God can do that. And that's the point here, that Jesus is God, and he looked like Joe Average from down the street. So no wonder they got fooled. In fact, verse 3 says, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man's blaspheming. Now, the commentaries say that blasphemy is to infringe on the divine prerogative. To infringe on the divine prerogative. That Jesus' words or actions seem like he's taking credit for the ability to do something that only God could do. So they're thinking he is claiming to have the powers, the same power that God has. He's claiming to be God. Nobody can do that. The, the man's blaspheming. You're claiming you have a power that that power belongs only to God. And they are right about that. This power to forgive sin belongs only to God. And they're partially right on the first half. It isn't right or good for a person to pretend to be God. But they, what they hadn't figured out yet is Jesus isn't pretending. He really is God. He really did have the power to forgive sin and to heal and to read people's thoughts. And when they saw all these things, that was where the scribes came up short because they refused to revise their view of the person of Jesus when they were confronted with the evidence. This is the first recorded incident in the book of Matthew where the scribes and the Pharisees are openly critical of Jesus in public. See, unfortunately, they are confronted with incontrovertible evidence and they cannot or they will not come to the right conclusion because that means giving up a lot of what they hold dear to actually say, you know, I went and visited that Jesus guy, and he is legit. He is actually God come in human flesh. Would not have flown with their friends back at home or down in the temple in Jerusalem. And they love the praise of man rather than the praise of God. Look here for a moment at the power of God working in Jesus. He reads the paralytic's mind. He says, take heart, my son. In other words, be encouraged because the man was afraid and feeling unworthy. And Jesus knows what's going on in his heart. Nobody enumerated his sins out loud. Nobody needed to. The man didn't. Jesus didn't, even though they both knew all the gory details. And you know, the thing is, sin is fun. And it looks so attractive before we engage in it. And then afterwards you wonder, what was I thinking? It wasn't that great. It broke my communication with God. It hurt people I love. And that's not a win. 
So Jesus has, reads the paralytic's mind, then he has the power and he forgives sin. And he defends that as that's exactly what he has done and what he can do. And then he reads the minds of the scribes who are criticizing him, finding fault in their minds. It says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil thoughts in your hearts? What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Now, who knows your thoughts from a long distance? Oh, there might be people who have gotten to know you and they could guess. God knows for sure. In fact, Psalm 139, David had figured this out a thousand years before Jesus. He said, oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on... Oh, I left the important line out, didn't I? Verse 2. You know when I sit down, when I rise, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where, where, how can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. And then he concludes by saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God was doing exactly this on that day with the scribes. He was testing their thoughts. He was searching to see if there was a place in their heart for him. <clears throat> and they didn't pray, Lord, bring to my attention what's grievous to you in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, Jesus went on to say, so that you know that the Son of Man can forgive sins on earth. He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and walk. And he rose and went. Now this guy, he must have been a good introvert because he never said a word. He didn't complain when his friends got him from home. He didn't come say a word when they dragged him up on the roof or when they lower him through the hole or when Jesus said, get up and take up your bed and walk. He simply <clears throat> acted in obedience and followed God. I mean, look at, look at the power of Jesus here. He can speak, and God delivers power where there is no power. He can say, your sins are forgiven. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man who was paralyzed, nobody contested, was he a paralyzed person? He was able to get up and walk away. March 18, 1994 probably didn't stick in your mind like it did in mine, but it, uh, it was a Friday, and it was my day off, and I was going to get to cut down a Modesto ash tree at a friend's house, and I love running a chainsaw, and so that was, it was like going out for recess. So I took my two boys with me. They were five and six at the time, and we headed out with my chainsaw to go help, and the cutting was working well. We were taking all the branches off, and then I got to one that was really big, and I cut it, and things kind of went sideways, and I ended up catching the branch before it got to the ground, which is not a smart thing to do. It was about the size around of a telephone pole, and I saw that it was coming, so I'm trying to run away, and it caught my feet on something, and then it smacked me from behind and pinned me to the ground, and I couldn't move, and there was instant obvious pain in my hips. My boys are watching in horror. I'm still holding a running chainsaw, even lying on the ground. It had managed to not hit my nose, but I had nicked my chin, so I had to get some stitches in the chin. So anyway, an ambulance came, and we went to emergency room, and 45 minutes later, I'm finally getting an x-ray, and the x-ray tech, I'm in extreme pain, and I know they say you can't dislocate a hip, but 
I did. And so the x-ray tech says, you got to get yourself on the x-ray table. I says, well, what if I was unconscious? And he didn't answer. So I'm trying to roll my body over with upper body strength and managed, I guess, to roll the hip in such a way that everybody in the room heard thunk and, and it, it pushed back into the socket, and the pain went from here down to here. And then they took the x-ray, and they looked at it, and they said, well, everything's in the right place. We don't see anything out of place. You can go home now. <laughs> Except it had been out of joint for 45 minutes, and everything was stretched out, and it was impossible to walk. They didn't have the power to heal with a word. And I wasn't healed that day at the hospital, and I didn't get up, take my mat, and go home. I praise God that I can still walk today. So compare that to Jesus. He spoke and healing happened. Everybody knew it was a miracle. Nobody contested it. They all must have known this guy and how long he'd been paralyzed. Maybe some of them had been classmates of his in school and even knew what accident he had had and how, how, how he had gotten hurt. The part they didn't know was Jesus. Who is this guy? I mean, he speaks and miracles happen. Only God can do that. And Jesus' point is, watch, I can heal with a word. I can forgive with a word. Both are the power of God in me. <clears throat> it says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So the crowd had that feeling that you might have had if you have a close call in your car where somebody's not watching, and you could have been part of a huge accident, but you just narrowly escaped, and then, whoo! Boy, that really could have gone wrong. And, you know, you realize I'm kind of at risk out there because 50% of the drivers on the road graduated in the bottom half of their class. <laughs> if they graduated at all, right? So it's dangerous. And um, you, you kind of have that uh, uh, post-event uh, adrenaline rush of, oh, my goodness, I could have really got hurt. Cindy and I had that once. We were out hiking on a trail, and we were not on a trail. We were just cross-country. We were following a stream up where we thought a lake might be, and we did find it. But on the way there, we got tired. We were working our way through thick manzanita, and uh, there was kind of a little trail, and it was a steep bank down to the stream. And so we finally sat down in a little spot between manzanita bushes to rest, and it was quiet enough that you could hear the mosquitoes buzzing around your ears. And then all of a sudden, we hear this big clamor behind us, and then the next thing we see is this this deer, this huge deer, his buck was about the size of a stallion, as I remember it. Anyways, he's, he's running, and he just veers a little, just barely misses us, and then leaps over the stream and is gone. And we realize we're probably sitting on the very spot where he would launch himself to run, jump over that stream. This was not his first run through here, and um, we could have died right here. And it was a close call. So you have that, oh, my goodness, and the fear. And all these people in the house, when they saw the, after they saw the miracle, they realized something just happened here. The power of God was here. There was a lot of voltage here. We could have died. Jesus speaks, and this man is healed. And when you find yourself in the presence of God and you realize you're so close to so much power, I mean, it could kill you. Isaiah had the same experience. There was a national crisis. It's in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6. And the king has died and he wonders what to do. So he says, I'm going to go to church to pray. And he goes to the temple to pray and God is revealed to him. It says the glory of the Lord, the, the, the robe of the Lord just filled the whole place. 
And he's hearing seraphim flying around going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the building was shaking from the foundations up just for demonstration purposes. And he has this instant fear of, woe is me. It's like, you know, he, he, the woe is kind of a cleaned up version of, of, oh dear, or whatever it is you say when you're really pressed. You know what I'm saying? When something goes very quickly and suddenly wrong and something word just squirts out of you. You know, he says, woe. It's, it's, it's like, I'm cursed. I mean, there's instant fear. I'm in the presence of God and I'm a sinful person and my thoughts aren't clean and my words aren't clean and I live among a people who have unclean lips. I don't have a chance of living without sin and I'm going to die because I'm in God's presence. Maybe you've had that experience when you realize, I am in the presence of God. I'm not righteous. God cannot and will not tolerate sin. And I've got it all over me. I've got it even on the inside of me, all the way down to my heart. Oh, no, oh, no. And people live under this burden of sin and shame and guilt. And Jesus came to set us free from that. Just give it to him. He will trade you that for his new life. When the crowd saw it, they said they were afraid. And then they glorified God who had given such authority to men. I mean, this resolved itself by being gripped in the fear to everybody just saying, praise God, glory to God. God is good all the time. And look what he just did. And we, we witnessed it. And then it says, they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And that last phrase really is kind of confusing to me. I'm not sure if it was Matthew or if the scribes snuck this one in. To give glory to... God gives authority to men? No, you give glory to God because God is so great. Because Jesus has the power and authority of God right here in the room with us. It's not the men that have such authority. That belongs only to God. And I think the saddest part of this story isn't even here. It doesn't tell us. I mean, this story is in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And the part that's missing is the part where after Jesus has addressed the scribes to say, you know, you're challenging me for saying your sin is forgiven. Which is easier to say, your sin is forgiven or rise and walk? Looks at the man and says, rise and walk. He gets up and walks. The next appropriate thing after the, 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 the fear and then the clapping by the crowd is the scribes should have had the next line. They should have said, oh my goodness, wow, you are amazing. You can do miracles. You can forgive sin. You are God. We are so sorry that we had evil thoughts about you please forgive us please come alive in my heart and be my savior and be my god and give their hearts to jesus but not one scribe said that not one why jesus had just proven that he had superhuman authority jesus called himself the son of man which these scribes since they basically memorized the whole bible would have known came from daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 and in it it's, this is what daniel says i saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days that's god and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed jesus favorite term for himself was a son of man and this is where he's headed this is the ultimate where God is giving all that dominion and glory and kingdom and people and nations and, and uh, languages to serve him. All of that is going to glorify and honor Christ. In other words, Jesus is the man in charge. 
even though he looked like Joe Average from down the street. And the sad truth here is that even a miracle doesn't change a closed, hardened heart. A miracle, something they couldn't explain, something they knew was an act of God, did not cause them to reevaluate the condition of their own heart. Jesus himself told a story about a rich man who had a beggar named Lazarus who lived outside of his house. And the day finally came when they died, and the rich man went to hell, and Lazarus went to heaven. It says it went and sat on Abraham's lap. And there's a chasm between them, so you can't go back and forth. But I guess they were close enough, at least in Jesus' story, to yell to each other. And the rich man asks for Lazarus to come and bring him a drip of water. And Abraham says, that's not possible. And then it says in Luke 16, 27, he said, well, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets is a shorthand version of saying they've got the Bible. All the books of Moses, five books of Moses, all the books of the prophets, they've got those. Let them read the Bible. It's the God's word. It's authoritative. They can listen to it. They can change their beliefs, and then they'll live in heaven. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Jesus spoke prophetically for himself. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's apparent that this miracle did not change the conviction of these religious leaders that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. Their minds were already made up. Their hearts were already hardened. No point in giving you any evidence that would cause them to have to rethink that position. And even in this miracle, God did not budge their conviction. And that's the sad part of the story. Why did Jesus heal people? He healed people to attract attention so people would listen to God's appeal through him. He healed to prove, I've got the power that only God has because I'm God. Now, that sounds pretty basic, but tomorrow when we go to Israel, there's 37 of us, and you can be praying for our group as we go. Most of the people in Israel today do not believe that Jesus is God come in human flesh. And yet today is Pentecost. It's the day that we celebrate that after Jesus died and rose from the dead and came back for a little while and then went to heaven, he had promised his disciples, I'm going to give you, pour out God's spirit on you and uh, your sons and your daughters will prophesy and uh, miracles will be done and you will do greater works than I have done as uh, you go and to share Christ. And um, it's the day that we remember that the spirit was given for all people that God is still healing hearts and souls and sometimes bodies, and he's forgiving sin. And, and the, even in instances where people are raised from the dead or have a vision of Christ, that he's uh, alive and he's living in people's hearts who invite him in. And he's knocking on the door of people who have a hard heart. And in the, the book of Acts in chapter 2, after Peter preached and said, repent and turn to Christ, so those who did received his word and they were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And awe came upon every soul that 
Oh my goodness, God is doing something amazing here. And many wonders and signs, that's miracles, were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had everything in common. In other words, they were sharing with each other. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they were practicing generosity, just like you have been with the wells in Africa. Thank you once again. The missionary said, this is just unbelievable that you would be so generous. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I would guess when the ex-paralyzed man got home, the joy that he had to share with his wife and with his kids and with his friends was excessive. That there was a sense God was actively at work in my life today. And he freed me from my sin and he freed me from the, the paralysis that I've been living with. And we have a God who's compassionate and generous and loving and we can praise him with a sense of awe. See, Jesus came to forgive and to restore. Are you willing to let him work forgiveness in your heart, restoration in your heart? I mean, where has sin or lack of forgiveness paralyzed you in relationships because sometimes we have these hard hearts right we say yeah okay i love jesus but i'm going to hang on to this little grudge or this this little hurt and we end up it prevents us those things stack up they prevent us from allowing jesus to have full rule and reign in our hearts we need to recognize that jesus is god and to give him our whole heart and let him do a miracle that only God can do. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this account. Thank you that that paralyzed man so long ago was set free by the power of God at work. Now do your work in us, we pray, that we will be drawn to you because we love you and you love us. Thank you. Amen.